Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, we're welcoming Reverend Alexander Lang to the show. Alex is an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA who worked in church ministry for 20 years. Alex is the author of Restorative Faith, a book that recasts Christianity in a new light for the 21st century skeptic. He's also the author of that viral blog post about clergy burnout you've likely read. Alex also hosts the Restorative Faith podcast, which blends history, science, culture, and scripture into thought-provoking episodes. Alex's interests include independent film, electronic music, and deep conversations with people who question, doubt, and want to dig into the most complex issues we face as humans. When he's not working on books or the restorative faith movement, Alex enjoys spending time with his wife and two sons. Also of note, this episode is hosted by Martha Tatarnik, a new partner to the Future Christian podcast team. So let's welcome Alex and Martha to the show. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am your guest host this week, Martha Tatarnik, coming to you from Niagara, Ontario. And I am quite thrilled to be talking today with the Reverend Alexander Lang. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that we were able to set up this interview for today. Um, I understand that you've been pretty busy fielding requests, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in the meat of our podcast. But I thought that I'd just give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. What uh, what else would you like to share with our listeners before we get talking? Um, well, I know on your podcast, you tend to give a little bit of background on how you grew up and maybe your faith walk. And I just thought it'd probably be good for your listeners to hear a little bit about kind of how I grew up. Um, I grew up in the town of Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is a, a historic town. It's actually best known for the Civil War battle that was fought there. George Washington has roots in that town. Uh, his sister had a house there. Like it's a very historical area. People come yeah. there often for uh, a lot of a lot of history. And so my family has roots in that town going back generations well into the 1800s. We attended uh, the Presbyterian Church of Fredericksburg and uh, my family, going back on my mother's side, they were kind of founding members of that church. They were part of that community. And what's interesting is, is that when my mother and father got married, my father was not religious at all, but my grandmother would have it no other way that, that if they were going to get married, they were going to get married in that church. Right. And my, my father, he actually is Jewish on his side, oh, uh, on his father's side. And so, you know, this was a real big shift for him to actually have to come in and make this change. Uh, and so he sat down with the pastor at that time uh, and talked to him. His name was Reverend Lemming, uh, a very important pastor in my faith journey. But essentially, he sat down and he was like, look, I, I can't say that I believe that Jesus is God. And what's interesting is, is that Reverend Lemming said, well, that's okay. You don't have to. You have to believe in the message of what we're here to talk about. And I think that in many ways, even though I wasn't even there for that particular conversation, uh, that set up a lot of my journey going forward. And maybe it was somehow through osmosis, you know, it kind of got into me that way. Hmm. Because the fact is, is that I didn't, I grew up going to church all the time. I never, I wouldn't say that I believed it in the sense that uh, when I was young, like I had a very like deep faith. It was very intellectually curious for me. Yeah. And, uh, and so when I went to college, I had actually gone to Rice University in Houston. Uh, I'd never been to Texas before. That was the, that was like a culture shock to me. Uh, Texans are very proud of their state. And 
Texas Christianity is a very particular kind of Christianity, and I didn't drink alcohol. And so I was put, when I got to Rice, with uh, a, the only other person I think at Rice. Rice is a wet campus. So I think the only <laughs> other person there who didn't drink was this guy. And so they stuck me with him, and uh, and you know he was really fundamentalist. I had never encountered anybody who kind of believed in the way that he did. Mm-hmm. And all I knew was I disagreed with everything that he thought. And uh, I was there for engineering. And so I figured out very quickly, I was not smart enough to be an engineer. So my second semester, I was like, hey, would you be willing to take a religious studies class with me? Because I just, I was so tired of him just basically beating me down with the Bible. I knew nothing about it. So we went to this religious studies class and it was like, it's like this whole world opened up to me because it's very deconstructionist, but it was like his kryptonite because they, you know, they, they took it from an intellectual academic perspective. And I thought, wow, this is like great. And then I, I got to study over at Oxford University for a year under like monks and friars, these Catholic monks and friars. And that was really inspiring to me because I thought based on what I had experienced in Texas is that there was basically, there was two ways you could do it. You were either like a fundamentalist Christian or right. you believed in kind of the academia. And what I saw with these guys was they knew all the academia backwards and forwards, but they had a deep faith. And I thought, oh, this is the kind of pastor I would love to be. Like, that's the kind of person I was looking for when I was growing up, but didn't yeah, have. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to become. And, uh, and so, and I think it's part of my Jewish blood, to be perfectly honest. Like, it's interesting. I met my wife. She, uh, when I was at Rice also, we both have Hungarian Jewish ancestors on our is father's that right? side. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a strange thing. It's weird like the one person who you like find is like I don't know. It's weird how you can be attracted to like that one person who's like somehow in your DNA. Yeah. And so uh so I think though that my my Jewish part of me, you know, that I I approach Christianity kind of like the rabbis approach Judaism. Uh where in Judaism, you know, there's lots of questions, a lot of really vigorous debate, but mm-hmm. not a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is like, just like that story in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God, like that's the, you know, that's the template is that you're supposed to wrestle with God and you're supposed to live in the tension of those difficult questions. That's what Judaism is, is really pushing people towards. And I think this is a big reason why like uh, my sermons for, for some people, they were really enthralling because they appreciated that tension, but could be very galling yeah. to people yeah. who uh, were looking for those concrete answers from the tradition. So uh, that would be kind of maybe a little backstory about who I am and and why like why I became the pastor I became. Yeah, I think that that's um, quite an amazing story and quite an evolution of uh, of understanding around what belief can look like. Um, I just like picking up on that piece around Judaism. I think the other part that I've always understood about Judaism that I appreciate so much um, and that I kind of filter into the reading of Jesus is that sense that we can disagree and not take that personally with one like that that isn't a personal affront if you disagree with me that we can both maybe be better for wrestling with this together so um yeah i i I wonder i and i guess with that observation i just wonder what happened to that friend of yours that you took the class with oh yeah so was it transformational um, for him too no, oh God. Well, it was tra- transformation probably in the other direction uh, okay. for him. I mean, he he actually it's it's so fascinating. There was three of us in our in our suite. All of us ended up going into church work, albeit in very different ways. I have uh, one of my roommates was uh, the other roommate who was with us. He's one of the top uh, organists in the country today. Uh, he's one of like the best improvisational organists around. Um, mm-hmm. And then my the roommate who was a fundamentalist, he went on to do he does mission work, um, and I think he he works over in Asia as a as a missionary. I think that's what he does now. So, uh, so yeah, we. We all went in our different directions, uh, but I would agree with you. Just just to jump back real fast on that, I actually think when you and, and you know you can read Jesus in so many different ways in the Gospels, but for me, I think that he asks us to live in the tension of those difficult yeah. questions, yeah. But with the understanding 
that God's fundamental nature is that of unconditional love. Like, have, did you ever watch um, Tree of Life? Have you seen that movie? No, with I Brad haven't. Pitt and it, Jessica Chastain. It's totally. <clears throat> so yeah, so it. it's a very it's an artsy film. Uh, it's by Terrence Malick, and there's this kind of beautiful. It's 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 very much about religion, uh, and and so what's interesting is there's this line in it where Jessica Chastain, who's the mother, she says the nuns taught us that there is the way of nature versus the way of grace, mm-hmm. and that's really what the whole movie is about is like nature versus grace, and I think that the tension that you find in in the Gospels is that Jesus's way is the way of grace, but we're always being pulled back kind of biologically by our nature and those two things are intention and kind of that's the beauty of Christianity in my opinion is is that you're trying to like navigate between those two parts of kind of God's way of teaching us about unconditional love and then the nature of who we are which can be rather selfish at times even though there can be some altruism mixed into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we begin this podcast with this bit of an icebreaker, but I feel like a lot of what you've shared in um, that opening background is going to be important for the rest of our conversation, because I think uh, that that tension and that vision of what Christian community can be um, is is a, a significant piece of what I heard you kind of naming in uh, in the piece that we're here to discuss. Now, just before we get into that, though, um, I do also want to ask quickly whether there is a spiritual practice that you have found particularly meaningful or particularly meaningful of late that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners. Sure. Uh, this is going to be sound rather strange because it was strange to my community at First Pres, but at my most important spiritual practice is finding beauty in the world. Mm. So I believe that God is literally infused in all things. And so when... And and the way that I kind of put it is, is that whatever's inside of us, a soul, a spirit, whatever it is, that we have this bodily shell that separates us from the world. And so when our hearts are pierced by beauty, I think that's when I feel confronted by God's presence the most. And that beauty can be in nature or in art, in knowledge. Any of those things can allow us to experience God's presence. And so for me, I, I mean, the deepest way for me, it really is through beauty. Yeah, I really relate to that. And, uh, you know, I think that we probably have places, as you've said, in our lives that uh, that, that beauty pierces through a little bit more depending on kind of our, our uh, makeup. For me, it's definitely like music and literature. Like those are the two places definitely. where I can just about fall on my knees, you know, just yeah. in an instant, All right? Okay, well, let's get into the the main thing that we're here to talk about. Um, so, you uh, wrote a piece a couple of, a couple of weeks ago now um, and published it on social media called Why I Left the Church. Now, I did see on your Facebook post uh, an interesting note, which was to say that, you know, you're kind of used to writing blogs and uh, having an audience of, you know, like a solid 70. (laughs) 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 And uh, kind of, you know, I think as I can often find as a writer too, like you sometimes wonder whether anybody's really reading it. Um, This particular piece really went viral within the Christian leadership community. And I think by now has been read like hundreds of thousands of times. When I reached out to you about coming on this podcast, your response was that you're, you were in the middle of fielding your media requests, which I thought was kind of an amazing response and probably not a response that you've had to give before with a readership of 70. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit what the last few weeks have been like for you? Yeah, no, it's been quite surreal. Uh, as you point out, like, I don't really have um, I, I don't really have many readers. Most of the people who read my articles, uh, frankly, are from my church. So, uh, and so when it comes to like writing, I've written more than 50 articles on my website. Uh, and 
those articles, you know, I, 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 the most I've ever gotten from a, from a post that I did was 350 views, which I thought was like amazing. I, I was like, I can't believe it got read 350 times. And so, uh, so when, when I put this out, I, I thought it was, you know, like everything else, like I probably, since you're a writer, you understand this. I write for myself really more than anything else. I don't write assuming anybody's going to read it. I learned long ago that if you think you're going to write because you're going to have an audience, you're going to be quite, quite disappointed. So well, and you'll you write of, differently too, right? Like you'll oh, absolutely. filter in a different kind of way. So yeah. Yeah. So. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and so, yeah, so I, I just write for me mostly uh, because I just love to write. That's just a part of kind of, it's part of my being. So I remember when I put it out and a friend of mine just, wrote, you know, he texted me and he's like, oh, I saw your, your thing, uh, your, your article. And he's like, it was really good. And I, and I wanted you to know, I just shared it on my Facebook. And I said, oh, thank you. That's really nice. Like, mo like my stuff never really gets shared. So, uh, so I just thought that was kind of neat. And I remember by the end of the first day, I'd published it on a Saturday. It was the first Saturday after I had retired from the pastorate. And uh, by the end of the day, it had like 8,000 views. And I was blown away. I was like, I can't believe this. I was like, this is really crazy. And I said to my wife, I was like, do you think it might get like 10,000 views? Like, <laughs> do you think it'll go over that? And, uh, and you know, as you said, like, it's like, uh, it's at like 350,000, 370, something like that now. And um, when it first started going viral, I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on, why people were reading it. And a pastor friend of mine who's very close to me, he called me and he said something that kind of put it all in perspective. He said, your article, it sparked a national conversation about mm -hmm. clergy health, mm -hmm. which I didn't quite realize that's what was happening at the time. Um, and so as a result, because like, you know, you talk about fielding media press, I was getting inundated with these messages from people who were commiserating. They were reflecting that some aspect of that article reflected their own experience. And uh, I really thought that was quite beautiful because what I was just trying to convey was how it can be, a, the pastor, it's a very rich experience. Uh, that pastor, Pastor Lemming, who I grew up with, um, you know, something he said to me when I was getting ordained, he's like, Alex. Like the pastorate is where it is. You know, yeah. you're, you're dealing with people at their best. You get to be there for the, the weddings and the baptisms. And then, you know, you're there for them with, with the, some of the darkest moments of their lives. And he's like, you, that's a privilege to walk with them. And I, I have found that to be true. He was very right about that. Uh, but at the same time, kind of what I was reflecting on in the article is that it could be a very lone place. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You can be surrounded by, you know, dozens, hundreds of people at a time in a congregation. But what they see of your role on Sunday, I mean, you know, it's a fraction yeah. of what happens. And I think that what I noticed was that a lot of lay people, and this is what I appreciated most, a lot of lay people who read it, they wrote to me saying, I didn't know it was like that for you guys. Like that, I think for, for them, it really opened their eyes to kind of what it can be like to to work in this position because you know they don't know it's it's very hard it's like any job you know you can sit there and say like what's that like but until you're in it you don't really yeah. know what it is yeah totally no i'm really i i think that's interesting kind of that combination of fellow christian leaders feeling seen and also um you know the wider church having a better understanding of of what the reality is. Um, so you wrote this article on the heels of delivering your final sermon at First Presbyterian, where you have served for the past how many number of years? Ten years. I've been in the past, you know, well, I've been working in the church for 20 years. Um, I've been ordained for 14. Okay. So, uh, so this was, yeah, so the last 10 was spent at this church as the head of staff. And you weren't just leaving First Presbyterian, you've decided to leave that version of ministry as a congregational leader. Yes, I'm yeah. I'm leaving the, the, yeah, I would say I'm leaving, yeah, uh, the, the pastoral life with, within, within the church community. Yeah, leaving that behind. Yeah, okay. So in the article, um, you know, it's a, a great combination of your own experience, but also some of the studies that have been done and some of the um, other voices that are out there that have been part of opening up this conversation around uh, clergy burnout. Um, there is a national survey of pastors that you reference in the article, which 
found that 42% of the pastors that were interviewed have considered quitting. Um, and I, you know, I kind of wonder whether that number might even be higher, but 42%. Top five reasons are the immense stress of the job, loneliness and isolation, current political divisions, unhappy with the effect this role has had on the family, and not optimistic about the future of the church. So you talk in the article about uh, which of these reasons resonate with you the most, but I'm wondering whether you could just speak a little bit to, to those stressors and and what jumps out for you the most in that list. Yeah, so uh, the top two for for sure, the stress of the job and the loneliness and isolation, th- those really did resonate highly with me. I think that, you know, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he had this amazing ability to empathize with people and their struggles. Uh, I think, you know, when I see it, I see him kind of coming into people and saying, you know, he felt for the people who he was serving, like he could see their pain. And for me, I love being with people in their times of need. And I assume that most pastors, like we get into this profession, right? Because we want to share God's love and offer that love to those who we meet. I assume assume that's why most people are there. (laughs) Um, But there's a lot of knowledge that you hold onto when you serve people in those vulnerable moments of their lives. You know, as, as I kind of reference in the article, you learn things about people that maybe only a handful of people in their lives actually know, or maybe you're the only person who they've ever told that particular thing. And that's a real privilege that they trust you with that kind of knowledge. Uh, I, you know, I've appreciated that my parishioners have done that with me for all these years. And, and I think that, that that's something that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be there for those people. I wanted to be that repository of information for them. But what I wasn't anticipating was how over the long haul, when you feel that level of empathy and compassion over and over again, that it's something that I personally struggled with to set aside when I came home. So I know that some people, they're able to hear about an aspect of a person's life and they don't necessarily like bring that into who they are. But for me, I I struggled with that uh, because, you know, somebody tells me that they were sexually assaulted when they were a child or that, you know, their their spouse is cheating on them and that they're going to have to get a divorce and that their child is struggling with this or that. Um, Or, you know, like I have somebody in my church when I left who whose child was dealing with with a very severe charge from the law. They're navigating the court system. Mm -hmm. These are things that... I can't just hear and leave because the truth is, is that when I see those people, they often come up to me and that's at the top of their minds. And they know I know about that. And they they will often mm-hmm. say, hey, I need to tell you something about what's happening with me because they know I know that information. And so, you know, I hadn't really, you know, I, that was just kind of part of being a pastor. But then I went on sabbatical. I was supposed to go on sabbatical in 2020. We all know that why that couldn't happen. Uh, so two years later in 2022, I got to go. And I remember for that three months, it was but the first thing that I noticed being gone was that I didn't feel that I had to have that knowledge like at the forefront of my mind all the time because mm-hmm. What ended up happening was that I had the capacity to be able to set it aside. Like I didn't have to think, oh, I'm going to see you on Sunday morning and therefore I have to think about that. And I don't want to say that it was like a burden that was lifted off of me, but it just didn't feel like I had the same weight on top of me where I had to have this information at the forefront of my mind all the time. And then, as I said, because I really do feel empathy and sympathy for these people, uh, and maybe, you know, I don't know if if that's a problem that, that that I do this, but, you know, I feel for them. Like it, it hurts me that they're hurting. And, yeah. and so that was just something that I, that I struggled with over time that just started to, as I said in the article, just weigh me down. Yeah. I have to say, like, I had this real kind of penny dropping moment when I was reading your article, um, which is really what prompted me to reach out to you because, yeah, like we all or many of us who are in ministry know about kind of 
the outrageous job description that we have and the the way that you're supposed to be good at about 10 million different things and you know like that it's there's a lot of time management and juggling of responsibilities and the decline of the institutional church you know all of those things but like i remember a moment last summer where a beloved parishioner died and like i just wanted out like i i just wanted to even just move into another church where I just like didn't know people and didn't love them and <laughs> like could just sort of bury them impersonally, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, like I felt a lot of guilt or like shame around feeling like that, like feeling traumatized by yet another loss in the community because I thought to myself, well, certainly not the only profession that deals with difficult things or deals with people in need or deals with death or whatever. But I think it is that very unique um, combination of the personal and professional that we have to navigate that means that you know, we're walking alongside these people. We are part of their lives. We know them, as you say, in kind of the most critical ways and then um but then we have to also kind of figure out how to bottle it all up and be the shepherd and be the professional and be the one who can get through a service without crying and yeah isn't that you know? interesting i mean you i was thinking about that as you were talking like how in a funeral you, you know, you have to be you, like you're the strong one, right? You have to be the one who who because they're the family's grieving and they they're looking to you to help them navigate through that process. And you know, the way that you talked about how like if you don't know the person, well, that's one thing to you know to yeah. just go and do the funeral. But when you know somebody, when you love that person, you're grieving as well, but you're really not given the permission to do so. And I think that's something that just a lot of people don't realize. And then you kind of like once it's all done, you just move on. Like you have to like okay. Yeah. Next thing, I got to keep going. So, I mean, I'm interested from your perspective, you know, did has that worn you down? Like, I mean, you said in that one moment, but do you feel the accumulation of that or is it is it something different for you? Yeah, no, I do feel the accumulation of that. I mean, for me, it can kind of ebb and flow and be related to sort of a lot of other things that um, might come and go in the life of the church and in the life of my family and um and that kind of thing um but i like in well i think in all of our churches certainly in my church there's this demographic cliff that we're going over and yeah there's lots of renewal and new people coming in and those good things happening but like a faithful generation is passing away and an inspiring generation and a generation of people that I know deeply and love tremendously. And um, it can be a bit breathtaking to try to figure out like how I, how I keep doing this, like how I keep, um, how I keep going through that emotional wear and tear. And, you know, I think that there are, there are ways that I've learned to navigate that. And, and sometimes it's harder than others. Yeah, well, and it's a lot sure. more complicated, I think, you know, I, I, and I don't want to d- downplay the idea that, you know, you that your faith can guide you through this, but I think it's a bit more complicated than saying, well, if you just have faith in God and Jesus, that, that that's going to give you the strength to get through it. I, I, and, and I think that's kind of a hard element of it, which is that I think that can be placed on the pastor and just say, well, mm-hmm. you have more faith than everybody else. So, you know, you, you'll get, you'll be fine. And, and, yeah. and I don't know, I, I think that's probably one of the most important, I, I want to talk about this a little bit later, but the, the, the element of what it means to be a pastor is, is really, we're still human beings. And I think that being placed on this pedestal has not been to our benefit in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And, I'm never a fan of the, well, your faith will get you through kind of tagline. I mean, yeah, you're right to say there, it's not that there isn't truth there, but, but I think that that truth has to be combined with some honesty about the actual experience. And, and I think that that honesty 
is a bit of an antidote to the loneliness that, um, you know, is the second reason why burnout is so prevalent among pastors. Um, one of the other uh, sections of the article that you talk about is uh, having a thousand bosses. And, you know, what you mean by that is that uh, a lot of our job can feel like it is sort of trying to bring our congregation alongside with the vision that that we have. Um, at the end of the day, like we don't get a salary from anything other than the the givings, the offerings of our congregation. Um, there can it can feel like a bit of a popularity uh, contest <laughs> in in the life of ministry and and I think that that can also be amplified just sort of across our social media landscape with this sense of uh, even in the mainline church of being a pastor having something to do with having a, a bit of a brand having a bit of a platform, a bit of a voice. Um, it, it can feel like the success of a congregation really rides on our ability to get people alongside us as a person. Um, that's quite a contrast to the gospel that tells us that we're actually blessed when people revile us on account of Jesus. Um it's it seems pretty contrary to the way of humility that uh, that we're called to to lead and you know you you talked at the beginning of the podcast about that that spiritual wrestling and um that not only has been meaningful to you but that you very much see and i agree with you as being fundamental to the way of jesus so um I guess within all of those tensions, um, do you want to speak a little bit to that personality and platform pressure, that uh, popularity pressure that you experience in ministry? Yeah, I mean, you remind me of a story uh, when I was when I was at seminary. I heard a professor say that if you're preaching the gospel correctly, then your congregation should be getting smaller, not larger. <laughs> I've heard that too. Yeah. And the reason why he said that is because, like, if you look at Jesus's ministry, like, if you just kind of look like the trajectory of what happens to him, like, sure, he's got all these people when he's in Galilee and he's performing the healings and people want to hear him teach. But as he moves towards Jerusalem, like, there's fewer and fewer people following him until pretty much everybody's abandoned him, right? So yeah, yeah. that's because, like, when you really follow Jesus's message closely. In my opinion, it's a hard message. And people don't want to hear that they have to sacrifice, that they have to give up what they have for the benefit of others. Who wants to hear, turn the other cheek and love your enemy? Yeah. Like that's Those are not popular messages. Blessed are the poor. Right. Yeah. Like they, yeah. these are not things that people, that, that people generally want. So like I, I took that into to heart immediately where I was like, I'm not out there to win a popularity contest. And I will say like my messages, they were always full of hope, but they were definitely not feel good messages because mm -hmm. like, I think what Jesus did was he challenged people and he held a mirror up to society, right? Like that was kind of like his way of doing things, which is hard because it makes you reflect on who you are, which isn't always a good thing. But the reality yeah. of our modern church is that it has become a business. So like my church, you know, and, and I just want to say, because I think that there's, I was reading through some of how people were kind of talking about like making assumptions. My church was a, a church that was full of amazing people. And as hard as it was at times to be a pastor, like I loved my time with those people over the last 10 years. Yeah. But like, let's take my church as an example. I told you that, it, like I said in the article, it was about a thousand people. The campus it occupies a full square block in our town. I mean, it's huge. It's a huge complex that it required, it was $250,000 a year just to keep it running. That That's, yeah, if nothing yeah. broke, you know, that we still had to pay for more on top of that. And we had a large staff. Like at its peak when I was there and I was the head of staff, we had four full-time pastors, me and three associates. And, and a lot of our budget, it went towards like paying for all of these 
people that we had on our staff. And since we're a mainline church, as you've kind of referenced, we skew much older, the silent generation, the baby boomers. Those are the ones who are sustaining our church. But of course, they're dying. And the younger generation, even when they do come through the door, right, they simply don't have the same resources as those older members did. So it kind of becomes like this game of how can we Mm -hmm. keep the system running so we keep the building afloat, we pay everyone's salaries, including my own, right? And then with whatever's left over, we do some ministry on the side. Like that's that's kind of like what we've ended up doing in the institutional church. And I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus envisioned when like he began his movement. He didn't say, go out and build big buildings so you can do lots of programming, right? Like he commanded us to go out and like make disciples. But I think what happens is humans, like we like a place that we can call home, right? Like that's that's just kind of the way that we are. We like to like nest in certain areas. Yeah. And so yeah. like any church, when you have a community and particularly if that community grows, I think that what we like to do is we we want a place, a building to call our own. I also think that we tend to erect monuments to our own success. So like we want to say like, look at what we built, look at what we did. And a building often reflects that to people. And, but once you have that building, that's what creates the whole cycle that we're talking about. And then of course it becomes an issue of like, you're talking about having a brand, right? Like, like that's true in some ways. Like I came into my church with a particular brand. Like they knew that I was pushing buttons and that I was going to do things differently and they did that thinking this could revive us this could bring us back but I, you know looking at it now at 10 years later because i was 33 when i started uh mm-hmm. at that church so you know i think that that was a bit of hubris on my part to even believe that that that, that was going to be the thing and i was kind of buying into that idea that that's what you needed to do when in reality i don't think that that's really what's like now i look back and i say like Maybe that's what we need to maintain that system. But in truth, I don't think that's the healthiest thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the line between hero worship and scapegoating is like pretty permeable. Yeah. <laughs> and and both are like pretty soul destroying, right? Mm-hmm. Because whether you're put on a pedestal because things are going well or whether you're blamed because things are falling apart, um, there's a an emphasis on the individual personality that seems at odds with the body of Christ. I would agree with that completely. Then that line is very thin. Very yeah, thin. very thin. <laughs> so, like, I'm wondering what you might imagine could make ministry feel healthier or more sustainable, um, given the the circumstances that we're in right now. Like, are th- are there things that you would hope for, for, for people continuing in pastoral ministry? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this question a lot more as a result of kind of everything that's been happening with this. And I think there's one obvious answer to this, which is, uh, and it's, it's the one that everybody knows, which is that you do have to reset your understanding of what we expect from clergy, but that's mm-hmm. much easier said than done because in my opinion, the church is only as healthy as the people who occupy the pews. And I think we have to be honest that being overworked is not just a phenomenon in the church. It's a cultural phenomenon. And so that's true. it doesn't yeah. matter the occupation. Everyone is being stretched to their limits and beyond their limits. And so it's no wonder that the congregants place such lofty expectations on their pastors because the same things are being asked of them that they're asking of their pastors. So I think the boundaries are blurred in a lot of different places, right? But I think there's also a deeper problem at play. You know, we talked about, I talked in the article about those seven competencies that are expected of a pastor, which, and how it's highly unrealistic for one person to be good at all those things. So I think that if we're going to keep the current system of churches in play, and, you know, this is an entirely different conversation that we could spend a lot of time talking about if, as to whether or not the system of churches that we have right now should continue forward as they are. But assuming that it's going to be kept in play for at least the foreseeable future, I think we need to ask every pastor when they started a church, like, what are you good at? Like, what do you, what of these competencies, like, what do you do very well? Where do you struggle? And if you're not good at something, the church needs to step up 
and fill in that competency with people in their congregation. They need to, they need to, as opposed to saying, well, sorry, it's just part of your job. You just have to do it. Uh, you know, I think that you have this group of people where you can actually fill in some of the things that you need. Um, and I also think that on the other end of it, besides asking that of the churches, you need to beat it into the heads of seminarians that you are human, you are fallible, and you are not expected to be the Messiah for your church. And I fell into that trap. I really believed yeah. that like, well, you know, this is riding on me and I, I need to make sure that this, that this church survives and does well. And the, the problem is, of course, right now in mainline churches in particular, because we're struggling so much, they're looking for a Messiah for their church. Like mm-hmm. we need somebody to come in and save us because we're, you know, we're dying. And to, in my opinion, and, you know, when you look at seminarians, some of them are so desperate for jobs, they'll take anything. And that's where a lot of churches are, where they're just like, we need somebody to come in and help us and save us. To me, that's a recipe for disaster. And like for me, I would say, I would rather you work somewhere else until you find a church that's healthy than to take a job like that because the expectations are just too lopsided and you're never going to be that person it's impossible for you to do well it's impossible and it's wrong too i mean absolutely (laughs) it's like we we have the messiah right we don't need to to be the messiah yeah no i i hear you i think that there is kind of a big restructuring question that especially needs to take place in our mainline churches um, that could de-emphasize like the individual pressure that that we feel and even that congregations feel. I mean, I think individual congregations feel an enormous pressure to either succeed or, you know, to bear the the shame of of letting go of something that has been passed along to to us. I mean, I think of your founding story and, you know, your grandmother and the founding members of your church. Like so many of our churches have these histories and these stories and this sense of tradition and this stewardship of gifts. And and then it it just the weight of like wanting to continue that um can just fall so heavily on one person or even one community. And it seems to me that there must be a grace coming in the the institutional decline that is going to force some restructuring and some collective thinking that like is really necessary. But it feels like in the meantime, that pressure just keeps getting heavier and heavier. Yeah. No, you you bring up a really interesting point about I, th- I think that holding on to what was is kind of is 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 really the downfall of so many churches right now because and unfortunately and fortunately and unfortunately the ones who are kind of floating the churches right now are the people who kind of remember what it was like when it was thriving and so yeah. I think that's a hard thing because I think they they feel like, you know, it could go back to that. We could be that again. And I think for those of us who are kind of on the other end of it, you know, I'm 43, I I see that that time has come and gone. And so we have to be willing to embrace like a completely different way of doing things. And it's hard for them because they don't want to do that. And I don't blame them necessarily for feeling that way. Like that, that makes sense that they want that. But unfortunately, there is that tension that exists because Like I was pushing us towards a very different way of doing things. And a lot of times it was just like, well, we can wait you out (laughs) because because we know what we want. And even if you want to do these things, that doesn't necessarily reflect what we want. And it's their church. I mean, that's the truth. It's their church and they don't have to do those things necessarily. So um, I think that that's where a lot of that tension exists right now. I think in about 10 or 20 years, those conversations will be a lot more fruitful. Yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. I think we're well, we are about the same age and um like I don't have any experience of the Christendom church. Like I just I I have only ever been alive in a time of religious decline and the rise of secularism and you know the the questions about the future of the church. So, yeah, it is it's quite a generational gap in terms of experience. Um, So, you know, I think that this is kind of uh, being a thread throughout our conversation, but I do want to talk about where you 
experience God in the midst of not just looking back over the past 20 years of ministry, but in the experience of leaving. And and maybe maybe I could like refine that question a little bit by just asking about that uh, balance between grace and regret. Like are are there regrets from the the past 20 years? Are there regrets about leaving? Or, you know, does does it feel like a graceful process even as something is um being left behind yeah so i've often told my congregation that i feel god's presence the most in my relationships with other people so um and those relationships have conveyed you know where i feel god's unconditional love is through them more than almost anything in my life is through them and so um you know if I'd say that's probably been one of the the most important things that that has come out of my time as a pastor. Now, that being said, my theology does push buttons <laughs> because I openly question traditions that I feel don't make sense in the modern world. Um, you know, I, I would do that in sermons. They knew that from the beginning. I did that literally from day one. So it's not like right. I was hiding the ball on that. That was that's just part of who I am. And it wasn't a bait and switch. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It was that was very much who I who I was from from day one. And as I reference in my article, this actually called a small group of people in the church to try to have me removed. And they were unsuccessful, but those efforts, they definitely stung. And they made me question, like, is the pastorate a right fit for me? Because some of them said to me, like, you don't belong in the pastorate. Like, they would say, you should just be a professor because you question everything. And, right. and, and for a while, I thought, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe I don't belong in the pastorate. And so, you know, I think that in some ways, what I looked at at certain points, and I regretted kind of being myself. I regretted being the person who questioned and who was willing to push the envelope in that way. However, what I came to realize kind of later on was that um, was that even though they didn't like it, that I was, even though I wasn't the right kind of pastor for them, I was the right kind of pastor for a lot of people in my church who really yeah. appreciated being challenged and wanted that different and new perspective on God and Jesus every Sunday. So I would say that after I went through that rough period, and most of those people just left the church um, after they were unsuccessful, um, I felt a huge amount of grace and love from the people in the church. And I would say we parted ways on great terms. I mean, it, it was it yeah. was such a fantastic last Sunday, so much more inspiring than anything I had kind of even imagined it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I left on great terms. And to answer your question, do I feel, do I regret leaving? I don't. I know that it's the right thing for me. This is the right time to do it. But um, But it was in some ways... It was an exit that I had never imagined possible <clears throat> throughout most of my life. I'm going to say this is a, a little bit of vulnerability. My leavings have not been great. Uh, okay. My life was kind of filled with a lot of chaos. And so it, what was normative for me, and I had to work through this in therapy, what was normative for me and a lot of my leavings throughout my, particularly for the first 25 years of my life or so, was that it was very chaotic. And so I've had to work very hard to not like, just drop an atom bomb every time I leave. And I don't know why that's like part of who I am, but that's, that is. And it's so interesting because it's like, I had such this great Sunday, right. Of like leaving the church. And then I published this article and then it was like an atom bomb went off again. Uh, you right. know, where it was like, and I was like, I didn't mean to do it. I thought I was just like, <laughs> like I really wasn't trying to do it that way. And maybe, frankly, maybe this is a conversation that did need to be had for sure. Uh, but yeah. But it did feel like I was like, I was like, I was working so hard to get out on, you know, and just, it was, it felt great, like a clean break. And then this all came up, which I think is for the best. I think, you know, sometimes we find God in the chaos the best. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I think what I'm certainly hearing in our conversation um, is that in lots of ways, it is your faith that is kind of a driving force in leaving and pursuing a next step. Like I don't hear a person whose faith is in tatters or whose faith has been, you know, destroyed by life in the church. It it feels to me like like your faith is um 
compelling you into this next step? Oh, I, I would say does that sure. feel fair? Oh, that's completely fair. I mean, I would say that I believe what I believe now more strongly than I ever have in my life. Um, and the church is a big reason why I feel that way. Uh, it, it's, it, it gave me the opportunity to, to put into practice a lot of these things that I've believed my whole life. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like this is what I'm about to go do is the logical next step. Um, and I did have somebody say to me early on when I got to this church, they said, you know, you really are, are a pastor to outsiders in the church. You're not really a pastor to those who have kind of lived there their whole lives. And I, and I kind of took offense to that when I, when I first started. I said, can't I speak to both people? Um, but I think over time that, that what I took as an insult I've actually come to embrace. And I think that that's true. Mm. And so now, uh, now that's where I'm going because I think that that's where I really, I need to be is out, out in the world. So, yeah. So can, do you want to share a little bit about what is next for you? Um, so I can only talk about that so much, but uh, I can tell you real quick uh, that I'm actually building a tech business right now. Uh, okay. And the, the idea is that it's, to bring people together. I, I came up with this, I had this kind of huge revelation while I was, um, while I was kind of at the end of my time at first Prez, And I realized that there is this kind of whole area that, uh, in the tech world that hasn't been utilized yet. And so right now I've, I'm kind of in the process of getting the seed money that I need to build the platform. It's around $2 million. It's a lot of money, uh, to, to get to where I need to go. But, um, but for those who I've shared the concept with, they've all said to me uh, across the board, I, I'm surprised nobody's done it yet. And B, I think it's very needed. Now, whether I, I think that probably what I'm trying to do, somebody else is also trying to do right now, I guarantee it. Somebody else has thought of this idea. They're trying to do it at the same time. I think the question is who gets there first uh, and kind of who's who ends up creating the platform that really is going to change uh, the way that we kind of see each other and we get together. Uh, and I don't know who that's going to be. It could be me. It could be somebody else. I just hope somebody does it. I don't care who does it. We just need to do it to have better relationships in our world. Uh, that's really important to me right now because what I see is, is we're getting more and more isolated and we need some way to bring us together. So that's essentially what I'm attempting to do. Well, it sounds like maybe a Part two to this podcast might be warranted at some point as uh, as you work on that. Maybe we can sure. talk some more as that develops. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break now, and uh, we'll be back with you shortly to wrap up with some quick questions at the end. Welcome back to the Future Christian Podcast. And uh, to wrap up our conversation today, we're going to end with the questions that Lauren asks all of our guests. And so I'm going to ask these questions as well. Now, Lauren always prefaces these questions by saying that you can take them as seriously or not as you want to. So, um, you know, it's, it's dealer's choice. Alex, if you were Pope for a day, what would that 24 hours look like? How would you spend your time? Ooh, well, I have to be honest with you. If I had 24 hours to be Pope, I would probably do everything I could to go after the sexual predators that are in the church. And I would immediately uh, issue an edict to start ordaining women right away. That would be, that would be my two things that I would do. Out of a game. Amen. That sounds <laughs> that sounds really like a busy twenty four hours, but uh, I support it. Good job. <laughs> what theologian or historical Christian figure would you want to meet or bring back to life, or you know, be able to have supper with? Definitely Augustine. Uh, I say that which Augustine? Uh, Augustine of Hippo. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So I say that because I don't think he realized how influential his writings would be on the church. And like all theology, a lot of his personal issues are kind of infused in the way he formed his doctrine. So if I could talk to him, I'd be like, dude, you've got to dial it back, like dial it down because some of your preoccupations are going to become the foundations of Christian theology for like centuries to come. <laughs> and it's not a good thing, man, like not a good thing at all. So um, like for me, I, I would definitely have that conversation with him because uh, a lot of what I find to be problematic in the church, I can trace back to a lot of his theology. 
So anyways, that, that'd be my take. All right. Well, you might, uh, that might be a, a tough, a tough sell trying to get Augustine to yeah, rein it in a bit, but no, no, for sure. <laughs> he would not listen to me. <laughs> You're, you've got a lot of ambition in these answers. I, <laughs> busy 24 hours and, uh, a tough sell for Augustine. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> What will history remember from current this current time and place? So I think what will be remembered like here in the 2020s is I think it's how the church was searching for its own soul. I think we've lost ourselves uh, quite a bit. And we've lost, I think, a bit of what matters somewhere along the way. So uh my hope for the future, which I know is kind of like another question coming up, because I think those two things are kind of interrelated to each other. Yeah, they are. Is, uh, is that we might become a people who embrace God's unconditional love so that we can actually go back to doing the work of the gospel. Because what I can tell you from reading the comment, like I didn't really comment at all on any of the comment thread from my article, but man, reading those comments, I was like, this is a dumpster fire. So like, to me, I think there was some good, like back and forth, some good discussion, but then there was just a lot of fighting. So for me, I think that what that shows in some ways is that we are kind of searching for our own soul of what it means to be the church right now. And some people are like circling the wagon and saying we have to protect the institution. And other people are saying, no, we need to do something else. We need to go forward. And so we're in this tension right now. I'm hoping that in 10 or 20 years, you and I could come back together and be like, wow, it's amazing where we've gone. And it's amazing what's happened and how the tension that we're feeling right now hopefully has been somewhat resolved. So that's that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's um, really interesting and kind of an interesting note on the on why your article went so viral that uh, that it's not just that sense of people being seen and heard, but it's also people kind of trying to work out these core questions about who we're going to be as a church and where we're going. Um yeah, really interesting. And where can people find you, Alex, if they they want to continue to follow your writing or go back and look at some of your other articles? Yeah, so um, I will. I post on my website, restorativefaith.org. Uh, once a month, I put that out. I, I made that website because I wrote a book called Restorative Faith, which I'm, a pro, I'm into process theology. That's kind of like my theological strand. So I wanted to create my own version of process theology. And so that's why I wrote that book. Um, and so every month I, I do post an article on there. And uh, I actually have a new book coming out in November, December. It's called Restorative Beauty, which actually we talked a little bit earlier about like where, where I find yeah. my connection with God. And so that book is about kind of uh, a new way forward, in my opinion, with spirituality. I mean, nothing is really new, right? But it's, it's kind of like my take on it. And so uh, that's coming out November, December. I've been working on that for about two years now. So I'm excited to, uh, to put that out. So yeah, so if you want to, want to go there you'll you can hear from me there and uh i really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me about this and it's it's been a really wonderful conversation actually yeah well i have to say i mean in what the last three weeks you have left a vocation you're exploring what a new vocation is going to be you had a an emotional and celebratory goodbye you went viral on social media and uh I'm profoundly grateful to you that in the midst of some pretty enormous life changes, you were able to make time to have this conversation on Future Christian because I, I do think that our listener, um, our listening audience is going to be really, really uplifted and challenged and um, blessed by being able to hear your reflections and experiences, Alex. So thank you so very much. Thank you. So we always uh, leave this podcast on a word of peace. So Alex, the peace of God be with you. Thank you. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. 
do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.